studying the book of Romans together. Come now to chapter 6. We are uh, moving right along, actually, not too bad. And uh, not that we're in any kind of a race, but it is nice to make progress. If you're with us this morning and you don't, own a, uh, you don't have a Bible with you this morning, just wave to one of the men that are coming up the aisles right now, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, mark to the passage that we're studying today. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from uh, us to you today. Romans chapter 6, Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, and therefore we were baptized with him, uh, buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that, he, that we also shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Um, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you uh, for the privilege of being able to turn to your word once again, to be able to do it in fellowship with you and with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the truths that are found in uh, just these 10 verses of your book and how important they are to each of us. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us the capacity to not only uh, hear, but also to understand and to receive into our spirits, Lord, and into our lives what it is that you have put these 10 verses in your Bible for. And so we come with hearts that are eager to hear from you. Uh, Jesus, you said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. And so we long to hear from you today and pray that you would speak into the privacy of each and every one of our relationship with you. And we ask these things in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. With chapter 6, we come to a new section of the book of Romans, and so I think it's helpful to be reminded once again of the bird's eye view of the book so we can continue to kind of understand the flow of of Paul's thinking here. Again, I think that the book is so rich and it's so detailed uh, in terms of its content that it's very, very easy to get lost uh, in looking at individual trees and fail to see 
uh, the forest uh, uh, for the trees. And so, uh, a simple way to view it is through the lens of five words. And the first word is the word condemnation, which encapsulates verses, uh, chapters one through three, where Paul uh, absolutely uh, defines and demonstrates each and every human being to be a sinner and uh, condemned before God and in the need of salvation. And then chapters four and five, the great word justification. Uh, and then the great theme of chapters uh, six through eight is sanctification or holiness. And then chapters 9 through 11, the word vindication, where uh, Paul brings forth God's right to save both the Jew and the Gentile precisely how he chooses to. And then the remainder of the book, chapters uh, 12 through 16, are practical applications into our lives as Christians. When I read the book of Romans, I, I like an outline like that with the five words, but I tend to look at it in a little more uh, of a personal level, that it's a description of what happens in an individual person's, uh, individual's life and their kind of progression of moving from uh, not yet a Christian all the way to ultimately becoming a strong, mature Christian. And so in chapters uh, one through three, here you have the man or woman who is unsaved. They're in that condemned condition. And then in chapters four and five, they become aware of the gospel, God's offer of salvation, and they uh, partake of that salvation. They become saved in those two chapters. And then in chapters six through eight, they uh, begin to grow as Christians. In chapter six, they learn that God's plan of salvation not only provides them with the forgiveness of their past sins and also provides them with the hope of heaven in terms of their future, but that it also provides them with the power to live a godly life now, a holy life now, freedom from the power of sin, to live a victorious Christian life. And then chapter 7 is classic because the same Christian, so often it's, it's every one of our experiences, or many of us anyway, where here, uh, learning all of the things in chapter 6, they uh, uh, ignorant concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 7, here is the Christian now tries to live the victorious Christian life in their own strength, and they fail miserably. And then it, all of that simply sets the table for chapter 8, uh, when they discover the key to the victorious Christian living is found only in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapters 9 through 11, uh, we grow in a, uh, here you have the Christian growing in a deeper understanding of God and theology, which is very, very important. And then in chapters 12 through 16, uh, they grow into maturity in terms of their obedience to God, grow into maturity that comes only with Christian service and, uh, and following the Lord in that. Now, the context of chapter 6 is a very, very profound and I think a stunning statement uh, that Paul made in chapter 5, verse 20, as we looked at it last week. The end of that verse, he declared, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And Paul realized immediately upon writing that sentence that, uh, that the statement was, is absolutely true. It's wonderfully true, but it also had the potential to be very much understood uh, by the reader of the book uh, of Romans, whether in the first century or, 
or even today, that someone might read a statement that is as strong and as bold as that and then conclude of the Christian life, well, uh, there's no need to change our lives as Christians. There's no need to repent of sins or to be uh, concerned about sanctification or holiness in our life as Christians because uh, it appears that Paul is saying that the more we sin, the more opportunity we give to God to display His grace uh, through our lives to the world. And, uh, and, and the temptation then to conclude that not only is a sin-filled life as a Christian not a bad thing, but that it's actually a good thing. It's good advertising for Christianity. Uh, the way of looking at the world and then saying, hey, everybody, look at my sin-dominated life as a Christian. And, uh, but look at how cool and how gracious and how accepting God is of me. And don't you want to know a God like this and follow him uh, a- as well? And you notice that uh, Paul raises the question in verse 1 uh, concerning this kind of an attitude or misunderstanding of Christianity. And he said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, it's important to remember that when Paul writes this letter, he's writing it to a church in the city of Rome. And that church is made up of Gentiles, and it is also made up of Jews. And when Paul writes this book to the Romans, the Jews are always on his mind, as is the case in all of his epistles. They're in the back of his mind. He is a Jew himself. And so he understands how they think and how they would respond to what it is that Uh, that he is writing. And he anticipates an objection immediately in the heart of even Christian Jews there in the church at Rome when they uh, read Paul declaring, but where sin abounded, grace abounds much more, and that they would immediately protest and say something like, listen, Paul, if you teach grace like this, you're not only going to encourage people to continue in sin but then uh, to go so far as to think that in continuing in sin, they're doing God a favor in doing this. You're going to produce within Christians no concern at all for holiness or for uh, sanctification. And Paul's uh, emphatic answer uh, to that challenge of, of what he's saying in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, in terms of God's grace, is described for us there in, in uh, the first two words of, uh, of verse 2, and that is he declares, certainly not. Uh, again, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he's talking about Christians, and he answers the charge with certainly not. He answers the proposition, certainly not. Now, allow me to read to you a couple of other translations in order uh, of these same two verses to help give you an idea of uh, the force with which Paul responds to this accusation uh, uh, against him, uh, uh, this concept of Christianity. Uh, The King James Version puts it this way, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The NIV puts it this way, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Uh, The New Living Translation. Well then, 
should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Uh, the Lexham English Bible, what therefore shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace uh, may increase? May it never be. Philip's translation, this is the final one, Philip's writes, now what is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. And I, I read this collection of uh, translations of that, that same verse for the purpose of emphasis, because I think it needs to be made very, very clear in our day when we can see Christianity, at least in the Western world, uh, increasingly trending toward a variety of Christianity that Paul is condemning in, in these two verses that he is disavowing. And what Paul is now going to do as he's going to drive home to us in this chapter is the fact that the salvation that God has provided to us by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, that it not only provides us with grace in the form of the forgiveness of sins and in the form of providing everlasting life, but God's grace is also represented in providing us with the grace to live a life free from the power of sin. Now, uh, concerning holy living and, uh, and sanctification, I heard someone declare that there are probably four main ways in which Christians uh, attempt to achieve it in their lives, and I'm inclined to believe him and agree with him on, on the issue. He says, we tend to try and deal with it from the vantage point of moralism or legalism or cheap grace or as Paul, uh, the biblical model as Paul lays it out here in Romans uh, chapter 6. The first attempt so often, I think, even within Christians in terms of achieving holiness or sanctification within our lives is to try and do it through moralism. And this is the person who attempts to deal with their sin nature through the setting of some kind of a self-determined moral st standard for their uh, conduct. In other words, they'll determine that what they're going to do in terms of their Christian life is they're going to live by the golden rule. They're going to do unto others what, uh, what they would have others do unto them. And this kind of Christian tends to be uh, a relatively uh, moral person to begin with. They don't really have a, a strong at attraction to gross sin. A and as a result, the majority of their life naturally falls within the commandments uh, of God. They don't understand why people struggle with sin and with addiction and these kind of things. By natural inclination, they're pretty good people, and by nature, morally speaking, they live a life above the average person, even uh, the average Christian. But the problem with this is that this kind of Christian never ends up addressing uh, sin or their sin nature in a biblical fashion. 
They just simply accommodate the Christian life to their own morality and say, in essence, this is what a good person should be, and this is the kind of person that I am, and they, they then make that the definition of sanctification or holy living. And morally speaking, the Christian life that they live is just uh, always just a stone's throw away from the person that they already were before they ever became a Christian. And they think to themselves, let's not get carried away with this holiness thing and the sanctification uh, thing. And they just settle into a nice, comfortable uh, groove, content to live their Christian life just slightly higher than the morality of the culture around them. Uh, after all, uh, that should be good enough. Uh, surely God's not going to judge my Christian life on the basis of the standard of his word, but rather on a class curve, and I think I will fare very well uh, in that judgment. But in, the, in this person's life, there's never in their entire Christian life any serious consideration given to the biblical standard of, of holiness or sanctification. The second means by which Christians tend to try and achieve sanctification in their life is through legalism. Uh, and this is, the, this is the kind of person who tries uh, to uh, address their sin and their sin nature uh, by legalism. And typically, this kind of person, uh, they have a very clear understanding of salvation. They have a very clear understanding of justification. The salvation is through grace alone and through faith alone. They're very, always spot on in terms of salvation. But when it comes to sanctification, they come up with a very long list or a short list of man-made ideas about what it means to be holy. Uh, and typically, they'll have something to do with smoking or drinking and dancing and dress and entertainment and, and so forth. And they are like the moralist in the sense that they typically do this by natural inclination as well. Typically, when you look at uh, the legalism of the legalist, it always, always bears a very strong resemblance to who and what they are uh, by nature as well. And th the dangerous tendency among this group is that over time, uh, their definitions of holiness and then how sin is to be handled. It always drifts away from the definitions and the standards found in the Bible, and then it drifts toward the extra-biblical man-made standards and definitions of holiness that they have come up with. And it is their man-made definitions of holiness that ultimately become their entire focus concerning sin and sanctification and the definition of what it means to be holy. And one of the many problems with legalism is that it almost always addresses only our outward actions, and it almost entirely ignores our inward attitudes of our heart. And so, with the legalists, the inward heart attitudes, they almost never get addressed. Those, unless, as long as those attitudes don't come to express themselves outwardly in a sinful way. And as a result, the legalist uh, can never ever, and legalism can never ever produce a deep, true holiness or Christ-likeness. 
The third means by which many Christians address the issue of sanctification is by the means that Paul condemns here in these first two verses of Romans 6, and it is the means of cheap grace. And cheap grace is the kind of common word that we uh, use for this kind of thing. Antinomianism is uh, the more scholarly uh, term. Antinomianism, it comes from two Greek words, the word anti, which means uh, against, and nomos, which means law. And it refers to the Christian who believes that uh, because of grace, they are released from uh, the obligation of observing God's moral law in, in the Word of God. And this is the person who looks at their own life and, the, and human condition in general and says, listen, let's be realistic about all of this. I mean, we're all sinners. Why fight it? Why not just admit it and stop playing the games that the moralists are playing and the legalists are, are playing, and let's just simply be what we are? And, and instead of emphasizing holiness and sanctification, let's just ignore that part of Christianity, and let's just focus completely upon God's grace. And as Christians, uh, let's continue to engage in sin as we always have, and, and, and far from considering it to be uh, detrimental to the cause of Christ or to the reputation of God, let's recognize that it will actually enhance his reputation. Uh, it, it will reveal to people how gracious God is to sinners, and then they will be attracted to him as well. And Paul's response to this version of Christianity is, God forbid, uh, to continue in sin as a Christian is not acceptable, and it certainly isn't good advertising for Christianity uh, in the world. So, moralism, legalism, uh, cheap grace, they do not and never have, never will represent the path to godly living. And Paul, knowing this above all others then, proceeds in chapter 6 here to lay out the truth about how we are to handle sin and the sin nature as Christians. And I'm very excited to get to Romans chapter 6 and because of the impact that it's had upon my own uh, life and this, uh, this regard and, and how important it has been to my Christian life. I remember as a new Christian, I read a book by, uh, by uh, 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 Alan Redpath, and it was entitled Victorious Christian Living. And it was a study in the book of Joshua, a very, very good book. But I always uh, was attracted to that title, and it has really stuck with me through uh, the years, Victorious the, uh, Christian Living, because it reminds me of the fact that Christianity is one in which I'm not only saved by God, I'm not only forgiven by God, but I've also been given the privilege of living a victorious Christian life, that there has been supplied to me a victory over sin in Christ and a victory even over the sin nature uh, within each of us as human beings and a victory uh, over the devil himself. And Paul does something very, very wonderful for us here in Romans chapter 6 and that he brings out 
In, in my uh, looking at the chapter, he brings out four wonderful keys to living the victorious life. And the four keys to the victorious Christian life are encapsulated in uh, just four words within the chapter. And the first one is the word no, and he repeats that word or version of it in verse 3, again in verse 6, and again in verse 9. The second great word is the word reckon in verse 11, and then the word present in verses 13 and 14, and then the word slave, which he repeats in verses 15 through 23. We're only going to explore the first one this morning. You'll be relieved because of the long introduction uh, at that. We're just going to explore uh, the first thing that Paul speaks uh, focused upon uh, the, this word no, and then I'm going to ask you to hold your thought for a week, and we'll finish up uh, the entire thought of what Paul lays out here, uh, Lord willing, next week. I think that it's interesting, and I think it's very, very important to realize that the victorious Christian life, you, if you were to look at Paul and say he's going to write and instruct us on the victorious Christian life, uh, I mean, uh, hardly any of us would think he would begin with the word no. Uh, but it is interesting and important to recognize that the victorious Christian life is found first and foremost in knowing certain things in knowing certain things about who we are and what we are as a result of being Christians. It, 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 it all begins in our knowing. It all begins in our thinking. And the first thing that we're to know is what Paul uh, communicates in verses 1 through 2. Let me read it to you again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound uh, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer uh, in it? And again, Paul is saying that the salvation that God has provided to us in his Son is a salvation not only from the penalty of sin and, and forgiveness, but he is also and not only saving us from eternal damnation, which is a future uh, representation and expression of salvation, but he has also given us the grace to live a life free from the power of sin presently, from the moment of our salvation till the moment uh, we end up in the glory of heaven. And as Christians, Paul says, we are to know that again. He makes that profoundly powerful statement in chapter 5, verse 20. But where grace abounded, uh, where sin abounded, rather, grace abounded much more. But then you notice he goes on from verse 20, uh, finishing uh, from verse 20, then going into verse 21 of that chapter, and he says, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what he's communicating there is that as Christians, we are not to think of grace solely in terms of the forgiveness of sins, as wonderful as that is, but we're to also understand that God's grace is expressed within our lives just as completely and wonderfully in giving us the power to live a life free from the power of sin. And I think this is very important for us to understand 
as Christians. Because I would venture to guess that if you ask the average Christian what they thought of in its entirety when they think of the grace of God, they will say something like, I think of uh, uh, supremely and almost entirely of God's grace in terms of forgiveness or his patience uh, with me in, in my life. And very rarely, uh, in the average Christian's mind, is there a thought that God's grace is equally expressed in our lives by giving us the power to live a sanctified, holy, victorious Christian life. And so Paul is telling us that the Christian life that is described there in verse 1, one in which the Christian thinks, I'm saved and forgiven, I'm on my way to heaven, I don't have, any, have to have any concern about changing my ways or changing, uh, repenting of my sin or living a, a victorious Christian life. Paul says that is not Christianity at all. It is a complete misunderstanding of Christianity and a complete misunderstanding of the grace of God. And if a Christian is living a life of deliberate and habitual sin, Paul wants them to know and us to know that uh, that is unacceptable. That is not the Christian life that God intends for us. In other words, Jesus did not come into this world uh, live 33 and a half years on this earth, die upon the cross as the full and satisfying payment for our sins, and then rise again from the dead on the third day in order to provide us with that kind of a Christianity. The entire New Testament teaches that no one can be truly born again and fail to experience a changed life uh, toward holiness, that it is impossible for the person of God Almighty uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit to come into a human being's life and for that human being to remain uh, exactly the same, for that life to remain unchanged, uh, without a change toward holiness. And the reason that it's impossible is when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He is a holy spirit. He is going to produce holiness uh, within our lives as an evidence of His presence. Jesus uh, taught in the, at the end of His Sermon on the Mount, and He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He said, You know them by their fruits. He said, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, you know a good, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and therefore by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice 
lawlessness. And that word practice is a very, very important word uh, in this regard. Jesus is condemning anyone who claims to represent him or Christianity who deliberately, and this is very important to understand, deliberately lives a lifestyle of sin. Jesus is not condemning, and Paul is not condemning, the Christian who has to struggle with sin or fights against uh, sin. Every Christian does that. You're not an oddball by virtue of that. Join the crowd. We all do that in our, our Christian life. But what Paul is condemning and Jesus is condemning is the person who claims to be a Christian, and yet their life is characterized deliberately by willful and open disobedience to God's Word. And God's Word declares this kind of faith in a person to be a dead faith. James, you trust James for clarity in the New Testament. James writes in this regard, uh, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works or fruit, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God you do well, even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And the point that James is making is not that we're saved on the basis of our works, but that a true faith, a saving faith in Jesus Christ will always have works or obedience following within our lives, not perfection. No Christian will ever be perfect until we one day uh, enter into the glory of heaven by virtue of our individual death or by virtue of the rapture of the church. Every one of us, the Bible teaches, as Christians, not only sin, but we sin every day. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's a daily prayer that Jesus taught. It must mean that we sin daily, and we're in need of God's forgiveness on a daily basis. And I have no argument with it at all. I think all of us fall short of perfection and Christ-likeness on, on a daily uh, basis. But what is being condemned is that, is that our lives are to be characterized overall by obedience. And the person who claims to be a Christian and yet it lives in a continual, willful, uh, a, a, a deliberate rebellion and disobedience to God, James is saying, Paul is saying, Jesus is saying, that person needs to look very, very carefully at their life because the Word of God says that they are trusting in a dead faith. And that's the one thing, that's a deception we just uh, cannot, uh, and, and the, it's the reason I'm uh, um, giving attention to it today is because it, need, it needs to have that kind of attention with, with the, with, even with the strength that the Bible, the Bible brings it forth. It's an awful and dangerous deception. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
and do not be deceived. He speaks about the deception in this regard, and he's writing to Christians, by the way. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The practice of these sins. And, and why does Paul say these things uh, about such a person? Nobody misses heaven on the basis of engaging in any of those sins or all of those sins. But when a person settles down and engages in these sins as a lifestyle, their lifestyle of sin uh, reveals the fact that they were never, ever uh, born again. That's why Paul uh, went on in that same passage, and he declared to the Christians in Corinth, and such were some of you. These sins are to be in our rearview mirror in terms of uh, uh, deliberately practicing these things. But, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Again, I want to make it very clear, this does not mean uh, that I am not going to sin or not going to fall short uh, of perfection as a Christian. We will. But my life is not to be given over to an uncaring abandonment to sin. And so what this speaks is, is, is if any of us sit here this morning and you were in a church service at the age of eight and you went forward or responded to an invitation uh, of, the, uh, of the gospel and yet uh, and prayed the prayer and yet there hasn't been one bit of change in your life, I just, I beg you as a person who loves your soul, do not trust in that commitment that you've made. Uh, that is a, that's a dead faith uh, that, that happened there. If you said the prayer even as recently as a year ago, and yet your life hasn't changed, there, there's no uh, growing obedience to the Word of God or a concern to even obey His Word, don't trust in that. That's a dead faith. And that what has to happen is a willingness to repent of my sin and commit my life to God, be born again by the Holy Spirit. And when I am, I will never be able to be comfortable in, in a life uh, of, of sin. And then in repenting of my sin, then I can enter into the life that God has planned uh, for me. Uh, the life that sin has planned for me and the life that God has planned for me are two entirely different things, and they can't both happen at the same time. Let me also add that I think that there is without a doubt a very, very large number of Christians, and I think this number of Christians is increasing by uh, the year, uh, who really, really long for the victorious Christian life. They hate the life of sin that uh, they are uh, living, uh, but they're often untaught from the Word of God. 
about the things that we're talking about today. They want to get out of the pit that they're in, but they don't have any idea because no one's taught them uh, from the Word of God how to escape that pit. They, they're untaught concerning the victorious Christian life, and that's why Paul writes this chapter uh, as well as chapters 7 and 8. So the first thing that we are to know is that Jesus did not come into the world in his incarnation, live 33 years on this earth, die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for our sins, and rise again from the dead on the third day in order to provide us with the kind of Christianity that's described there in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. And if any of us as Christians have lowered the personal standard for holiness within our lives to the place that we are living our Christian life, content merely to be saved, but we no longer give any serious consideration to holiness or to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again, not only to provide us with the forgiveness of sins, but to also provide us with the grace to live a victorious Christian life that is marked overwhelmingly by obedience to His Word and by holiness. Then if that's what I've drifted into as a Christian, then what Paul wants to do here is, is for chapter 6 to provide a wake-up call and, and to allow it to be that wake-up call within our lives. The second thing that we are to know here is described for us in, in uh, uh, spoken to us in the latter part of verse 2 and then described for us in verses 3 through 5, and that is that we have died uh, to sin. And you notice that at, at the end of, of verse 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so Paul declares that each and every one of us as Christians, we have died to sin. We now possess, uh, as he says in verse 4, the ability to walk in newness of life. In other words, Paul is declaring that death produces a separation from someone or something that we once had a close relationship with. And sin to death, as he describes it here, means that because of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead, our faith in him, we have been set free from our previous relationship with sin. We have been set free from sin's power. In other words, we are to know that sin no longer has the same hold upon us that it once did. And it is vital to know that, that that is true about each of us as Christians, and to know that that is true about you and me this morning. Because something can be true, but it does us no good if we do not uh, believe it. The second thing that he's telling us here is that because we're Christians, we are no longer the same person after becoming a Christian that we were before we became a Christian. And it is vital to know that about yourself today and for me to know it about my life. 
I am not the same person I was before I became a Christian. And it's good to say that to ourselves in the privacy of our heart or out loud in the aisle of Rayleigh's, if that's what it takes in order for us to believe it. I am not the same person I was before I became uh, a Christian. And Paul speaks of this miracle in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is essentially a declaration of that truth. I am not, you are not, we are not the same people we were before we became Christians. Another thing that he's speaking here in this kind of subcategory is that we are no longer under the management of sin, but that each of our lives are under new management, under the management of the Holy Spirit, and to be able to say to ourselves, I am under new management. I am no longer under the management of sin. I am now under the management of the Holy Spirit. And to repeat it every day, to repeat it hourly if necessary, until I know it, until I believe it concerning myself. Again, the victorious Christian life begins in knowing. If it's not, if I, if I don't believe these things in my knowing, then it'll never translate into any, anywhere else within, within, within my life. And to realize that what Paul is saying here, these are not merely verses in the Bible. These are realities that are within our lives that we are to know. And Paul illustrates these great truths here by referencing in verses 3 through 5, water baptism. Uh, When a Christian is water baptized, it's never in order to be saved, uh, but rather it's something that we do because we are already saved. Water baptism is an outward demonstration of a spiritual reality that has already occurred within our lives as a result of being saved. When I baptize a person, I lay them uh, back into the water until they are fully immersed in, in the water. And if you were able to view the person that I'm baptizing with the view that I have of the person that I'm uh, baptizing, then they would look exactly as you might see them in a coffin. Uh, There they are. Their eyes are closed. They're laying flat. There's no movement at all. And all of this symbolizes our condition before becoming Christians. We were dead in our sins, and we were completely unable to raise ourselves up out of that dead spiritual uh, condition. But you'll notice that if you've ever witnessed a water baptism, that people are not left indefinitely in the water. They are always then raised by the minister out of the water. And this symbolizes something significant as well. It symbolizes, and Paul wants us to understand all of this. It's why he references baptism. This represents and symbolizes the miracle that Jesus has performed in saving us. 
that he has saved us and raised us from the spiritually dead condition in order to now live a resurrection life, to now live a quality of life that we would never otherwise know. Again, not merely receiving the forgiveness of sins, but now receiving the power of the Holy Spirit from God to live an entirely different quality of life, to live a resurrection life in newness of life, as he puts it in verse 4, now indwelt by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. If Christianity were merely the receiving of the forgiveness of sins, and then still being condemned to live the same old sin-filled life as before, then water baptisms would be something entirely different than any water baptism you've ever witnessed. Because the pastor would take, lay you back into the water, and then hold you there until the bubbles stop. And every single water baptism uh, would, in the city of Modesto would be followed by a headline in the Modesto B, 30 dead at water baptism, local pastor in custody. And wouldn't it be comparatively awful if God's salvation offered us the forgiveness of sins, but then no power to live a different life? than the life that we once lived. And here you are, you're forgiven, but you still have to live the same old sin-addicted, sin-dominated life that we always have. And I'll tell you, I would take it, if that's all that God offered in the salvation that's found in His Son, but the gospel provides us with the forgiveness of sins. And then, and then, the Holy Spirit coming into our lives in order to provide us with the power to live an entirely different quality of life, to live a victorious Christian life freed from sin on top of it. And that same Holy Spirit brings a new nature into our lives that loves God and wants to obey God and live for God every bit as much as our old nature and our fallen nature inherited in Adam loved sin and wanted to follow and obey sin. And that's a wonderful miracle that occurs. Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2 when he declares, for it is God who works both in you uh, to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit comes within our lives, and He gives us the will to follow God, the will and the desire to obey God, and then He couples with it the power uh, to be able to uh, do that, and, and He provides it to us. Christianity is not being forgiven by God and then cursed to continue or to live our old life with all of its sin and all of uh, the bondage of it until uh, we go to heaven someday. And Paul says every single Christian needs to know this about the salvation that God has provided to us. And this brings us finally and briefly uh, to know number three uh, in verses six through ten, but We'll read one verse related to it. And the, th one, the third thing that we're to know is that our old sin nature that we inherited from Adam 
was crucified with Jesus and that has now been rendered inoperative within our lives so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Notice verse 6. Paul says, knowing, there's that word, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, here it is, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. That phrase there, that the body of sin might be done away with, that phrase done away with in the Greek, it is the Greek word katargo, which literally means rendered inoperative. In other words, Paul is saying this, while we will always have a sin nature in this life that wants to pull us into sin as Christians, its power over us to do so has been rendered inoperative. That is, we do not have to obey that old nature that is within us from Adam. It is not that Christians are immune to sin or immune to temptation. We're not. Or that the sin nature within us has been annihilated and destroyed. Now, we're going to be tempted by sin until we go into heaven. But what it's saying is that because of our faith in Jesus, a greater power has been introduced into our lives, and we now have an upward pull in our lives toward holiness that in the new nature that is greater than the downward pull towards sin of our old nature. It's like a jet airplane that's taking off at, a, at, an, at an airport. Gravity is still pulling on the plane. The law of gravity is still at work. It is still in action. But the reason that the jet gets airborne is because of the greater power of the jet engines that allows it to defy the gravity, and so it is with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sin, yes, it works all day, every day to try and pull us down into bondage. But the Holy Spirit has provided us with a power to live a holy life that is even greater than the power uh, that sin once had upon us and, and, and it's yet attempts to draw us into bondage. And Paul says, we are to know this. And as a result, a Christian can never say concerning sin. I can never say concerning any sin that I commit that the devil made me do it or it was just my Irish temper uh, because we now have the power within us to successfully resist every temptation. Sometimes we'll hear the illustration, and it's a profitable one. It's a good one as far as it goes. Um, the uh, idea of our two natures being represented by two dogs that live uh, within us. And whatever dog we choose to feed is the dog that is going to prevail in terms of leading our life, whether we feed the old man or the new man. And, and uh, all of that is true. But the thing that I want us to understand from what Paul is saying here in that regard is this, that it is very important for every Christian to also realize that while both of those natures are present within us, 
They are not equal in the fight for the control of our lives. Nothing that we are or were in Adam is ever equal to who and what we are in Christ. And the greater thing that he has brought into our lives by the Holy Spirit in every way. And that's why there's the repeated words of Romans chapter 5 in terms of all that Christ has done for us and what the Holy Spirit has brought into our lives as Christians, as Paul repeated it, much more, much more, much more. And this new nature that is ours by the Holy Spirit brings with it everything that is much more than even the, the pull and the lust and the desires of the old nature and who and what we were in Adam. And the point is this, is that the victorious Christian life is available to each of us. The body of sin is, has been rendered inoperative in each of us as Christians. We never need to hear, uh, heed the prompting of sin, the temptation of sin, the whimpering of sin for a second chance within our lives or, or, uh, or, or of the old nature. And that's the third thing that we need to know in order to experience the victorious Christian life that God has for each of us. And so the recap as we close this morning, the victorious Christian life over sin begins with knowing certain things and then accepting these three great facts uh, about ourselves as Christians. Number one, that we are never to settle for a Christian life that is marked by deliberate and willful uh, disobedience and habitual sin. Number two, we are never the same person we were uh, before we were a Christian after we've become a Christian. We are a new creation. We are under new management, and that management is the Holy Spirit. And number three, we no longer need to obey our old sin nature. That while we will always have a, a sin nature to contend with in this life that wants to draw us into sin, we do not need to be a slave to sin because it has been rendered inoperative by the person and the power of God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit who has come into our lives by virtue of becoming Christians. And these are very, very good things to meditate upon in uh, the coming week and to ask myself, and I challenge myself regard to this, to ask myself, do I really believe these things, as the Bible tells me, and where I don't believe these things yet within my life, then to settle that issue with God this week. Now, hold that thought. It's a big thought, but hold that thought, and uh, we will conclude it, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. It's a mouthful this morning, no doubt about it, and what Paul lays out here. And, uh, but what he says here is so vital and is so, so important, and especially in our age in church history in, in the Western uh, world. And, uh, and 
in, in terms of just the sheer amount of content that I've de declared here uh, today. I make mention of it uh, just so you know. I'm as aware of it as you are. Uh, but the importance of knowing these things and, uh, and, and how, um, you know, we don't want this, this group of Christians that is experiencing the fullness of the Christian life and the victorious Christian life, we don't want that number to be getting smaller and smaller, but to be growing and becoming greater. And sometimes it requires, and I'm not chastening you or I'm not chastening myself at all uh, or, or apologizing, but sometimes it takes a little bit of theology to just stop and hear what does God say about these things and then to wrestle with these truths with God and until they become something that I absolutely believe concerning myself. The victorious Christian life, it all begins with knowing, and uh, what a wonderful place to start. Father, we thank you this morning again for your word. We thank you for um, what it is that you have told us here in, in these verses. And thank you for where you begin, Lord. I would have probably never imagined, I would have guessed that you would have head into the nitty-gritty of, of a victorious Christian life and where the rubber meets the road, but you know that will never be successful on that level until our thinking has changed in all of this. And I pray for myself and each man and woman that stands before you this morning that you would use this time in your word throughout the coming week and the remainder of our pilgrimage to challenge our thinking about what we not only understand theo the uh, theologically in terms of our Christianity, but to challenge the actual Christian life that we are living, Lord, so that we do not settle into something that is far short than what our Savior has purchased for us. We ask for that work of your Spirit in each one of our lives, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.